Today we're going to be talking about the clothes of Christ. So get ready for a reflection on what his clothes can teach us about his humanity and divinity. What is up, you guys? Welcome back to Fashioned by Faith. If you're new, my name is Lisa. It's very nice to meet you. Be sure to subscribe. I post new episodes every Wednesday. The title of today's episode is The Clothes of Christ. Hey guys, it's good to be back on the pod with you again today. I hope you had a good Easter. We had a good Easter, but of course it's, you know, it's so weird and strange to be without, you know, our extended family members. Um, just such a strange, strange Easter. Um, it was such a profound Holy Week because I feel like so many of us really felt the suffering, um, that our Lord would have felt during Holy Week and his passion. Um, and I just kept hoping and praying. I was like, just let's get to Easter and I'm going to feel more positive once Easter is here. I just had this feeling and I was just hoping and praying for some positive news in the media after Easter. And I think maybe we're starting to see that anyway. Um, but I just hope and pray you guys had a great Easter. Um, we took the kids hiking um, and it was so good for our mental and physical health, um, because in the neighborhood that we live in, um, it is extremely, the sidewalks are very crowded. There are a lot of dog walkers. There are a lot of people on our sidewalks and we live on a corner property. And so even when our children are in the backyard, there's just a lot of traffic, a lot of, um, people walking by um, that would want to talk or say hello. So it's kind of been hard for the kids and I to um, really have uninterrupted um, outside time, if that makes sense. We do have a church across the street, and so often I will take the kids over there to play in their parking lot or maybe in their grassy hills. But other people in the community do have the same idea, so that can get crowded. Um, and you just want to keep maintaining, you know, your social distancing, you know, and like one thing I'm noticing is not everybody adheres to those guidelines as much as maybe you would like. So, um, yeah, sometimes I'm surprised at how people walking on the sidewalk right in front of and around my house will literally, you know, walk right past another person on the sidewalk and they don't try to stay six feet apart. You know what I mean? So for these reasons, um, it has not always been easy for me and the kids to get out, um, just because we are interacting with a lot of people. There's bike riders that will come very close to us. It's just, it's very interesting. So anyway, I said to Michael, you know, I want to get out. I want to see the sun. I want to like exercise. And I said, I have the perfect place in mind. It is a, um, it's like a hiking trail. And what I love about this place is that there's different kinds of hiking trails. So like some will be very narrow and they go through the forest. And I didn't want that because if you're on a narrow hiking trail in the forest and somebody is coming your direction, you know, opposite direction of you, like, you know, how are you really going to maintain social distancing in that case? But I realized that this particular place has trails that are extremely wide 
Um, you could probably line up like six people shoulder to shoulder. Um, they're very wide trails and the trails are just mowed lawn. So they're very flat. There's not like roots of trees to trip on or stones or anything like that. So it's very flat. And these particular trails go along the outside of a forest. Um, so you're walking by trees and beautiful scenery, but you're not in the forest you're just beside it um you know and maybe on the other side would be like you know a grassy field or something um but yeah so we decided to do that and it was wonderful because i felt i felt very much in control of our family's safety um because just the way the trail was laid out we could really see at a distance if anybody was coming our direction we could really see if anybody was behind us um and there was ample room to know that if someone was going to come our direction, um, we could easily step into the field that was next to us, or we could step into the forest. Like there was plenty of room to maintain social distancing. So I'm so glad we, we found that place and, um, you know, and we're going to try to go on the regular, um, just because it allows us to, you know, get that exercise, get that sunshine, um, and, and stay apart, uh, you know, maintain that social distancing. So anyway, I hope you guys are doing okay. I hope you're getting the exercise you need and the sunshine that you need. Um, it, it can be tricky depending on what your living situation is and, you know, how much, how close you are to other people. So anyway, and I hope you enjoyed last week's episode. I, I really liked Michael leading us in the rosary. I thought that was so kind of him to step up and do that. And the funniest part, I think, was when Michael said something like, you know, keep true to your fashion sense or something. And I just laughed. I thought that was so cute because it's so funny how, I mean, you know, I love fashion and so does Rachel, but it's so funny how like right now fashion seems like such a small thing compared to everything else that is on our minds and our hearts. Um, but it was just cute to see Michael like, you know, trying to stick with the theme of the, of the podcast, <laughs> staying on brand, if you will. <laughs> so anyway, um, so Let's get into today's episode. We're going to do our usual segments. We'll do our handle on health. We'll do our two cents in two minutes. We'll do the fashion confession, and then we'll get into today's main topic. Now it's time for our handle on health. Okay, so here's my tip for the week. <laughs> um, I would encourage you to go online, search for... Um, a chart that shows how long the coronavirus can live on common surfaces. Um, I just keyword searched for something like that on Google and I discovered, I did like an image search on Google and then I came up with this wonderful uh, chart that was um, printed in the New England Journal of Medicine and I just hung it in our kitchen and it just reminds all of us how long the coronavirus can live on things like paper or plastic or paper money or the outside of a surgical mask, um, copper, you know, all these different types of surfaces, plastic. Um, and it helps because when we are sanitizing things uh, like groceries before bringing them into the house, or if we're like looking at our mail, we want to know like how long it can live on cardboard, for example, sometimes just allowing an item to sit in our garage for a certain length of time or to stay in the car for a certain length of time uh, helps us to know that 
if there was any presence of the virus on that surface, we can pretty much assume that it would be dead by this point. So I would just encourage you to print and hang a chart uh, showing that information, um, you know, for your family members. Now let's do our two cents in two minutes. Okay, so sorry for the background noise here. You can probably hear my car engine running. <laughs> There's two reasons why I'm recording in the car tonight. Uh, one, it's just a quieter place. You know, when you have your kids cooped up in your house with you for weeks on end, it can get loud. <laughs> and two, um, you know, we're not using our cars these days, so it's really beneficial um, to have the engine running, right? So. Uh, for these two great reasons, I was able to sneak out of the house and uh, connect with you guys. <laughs> so sorry for that background noise, but I just wanted to explain where I am. Um, so here's our recent question that we got from one of our listeners. Uh, her name is Caitlin, and she asks, Can you tell me about the significance of priestly fashions? And do you have any strong opinion on them? And I thought that was a really fun, great question to ask, Caitlin. So thank you. So my quick uh, two-minute answer would be, um, <laughs> you know, these sacred vestments that are worn by the priests are supposed to be a visual expression of the liturgy's role in the Mass. So for the priest, the vestments show him as, you know, in persona Christi, which means in the person of Christ uh, during the liturgy. And I think there's one of two ways that a priest can show this. You know, he can dress regally uh, to show that Christ is our king. Um, so maybe he would have, you know, very ornate uh, vestments. Or maybe he would dress more plainly and humbly to show that God chose his son to be born into poverty and live among the poor. So, you know, I think that either can be done very well and very right uh, when it's done with great love and respect uh, for God. And I just want to tell you, in case you didn't know this, each part of what a priest uh, puts on for Mass has significance. So um, let me just share with you a couple of those pieces, if you don't mind. So the first is the amice, and this is a white linen cloth covering the neck and shoulder, and it is to recall the cloth that the Roman soldiers used to blindfold Jesus when they beat him. Isn't that interesting? To be perfectly honest, I didn't realize that Jesus was blindfolded. Um, I didn't realize that's part of our teaching. Um, but yeah, so I, I believe a priest is charged to say certain prayers and to have certain reflections as he is vesting and preparing for Mass, um, which is just a beautiful way to center and focus yourself. The alb is a long white linen robe signifying innocence, and it recalls the transfiguration, you know, when Jesus was clothed in garments white as snow, um, as well as the white robe that he was clothed in, uh, you know, when Herod was uh, reviling him. So that's another part that the priest will put on. There's also the girdle or the cincture, and this is a white cord that cinches the alb at the waist, uh, symbolizing purity. And the cord also recalls the hope um, that Jesus uh, gives us um, in, in all that he went through um, 
in particular the scourging in his passion um, you know his hands were were tied with a rope and that is another thing we can think of when we see the the cincture let's see what else here I have in my notes um, oh the maniple is a length of cloth hung over the left arm symbolizing several things the chains that bound Jesus's hands the burden of sin and even the fatigue of priestly service. It developed from a handkerchief type cloth, which St. Alphonsus Liguori uh, noted was often needed by priests to wipe away their tears during the celebration of mass. Isn't that interesting? So I believe we see that occasionally, right? Could, could that be, I wonder if that's the same thing that you will see um, Father used when he washes his hands during the washing of the hands part of the mass. I'm not sure about that. Anyway, uh, then there's the stole. You're probably familiar with the stole. That is a cloth hanging around the neck, crossing over the chest, uh, recalling the rope tied around Jesus that led him through the streets of Jerusalem to his crucifixion. And I believe the stole is the minimum garment that a priest should wear if he's going to conduct a sacrament such as you know reconciliation if you encounter a priest randomly um, and you say father can you hear my confession usually he will take the time to at least put on the stole um, before administering that sacrament and then there's the chasuble and that is the outer robe that you see more often you know that's the first thing you see when you look at a priest during mass and that symbolizes the royal robe uh, that was thrown over Jesus by the Roman soldiers as they mocked him and crowned him with thorns. It is ornamented, ornamented with a column and cross design, recalling Jesus's scourging at the column and his crucifixion. When a priest prays um, as he vests, he speaks of the chasuble as the yoke of Christ. So yeah, that's what I just wanted to share with you about priestly fashions, if you will, uh, and the meaning behind it. And I also want to just talk about for a moment when a priest is not, quote, on duty, which is really, you know, priests are always on duty. They are priests forever and always, and they're never separate from their vocation. But let's say you're at a barbecue, you know, the church barbecue, the annual church picnic barbecue thing, right? And maybe your priest will be there and he's more casually dressed. I just want to say from my personal viewpoint, I really love when a priest will still have his, you know, clerical collar visible um, to distinguish him from the rest of us, that he is, in fact, a priest. Um, so that's just a personal preference that I have. I like to still see that um, even if a priest is dressed uh, casually, given, you know, the event. So anyway, that's my short answer. I hope it made sense. It's time for the fashion confession. Here's what I will confess to you guys this week. I predict that there is going to be a massive shift in fashions uh, following this quarantine. You know, people's priorities have changed. Our values have been, you know, racked and stacked. And I think we just might come out of this being less superficial and less greedy. 
Um, so I'm not sure what it's going to look like, but I'm excited to see what emerges in fashion after this quarantine. I, I just don't know what it's going to look like, but I just, I think it's going to be profound because we've never, we've never had this happen before in this way. It's unprecedented and I'm really, really excited to see what we're going to see. And I think it's going to really, really hit next spring. Um, you know, when all this truly blows over, I am excited for one year from now, next spring. I'm really excited to see not only what the fashion designers bring to the table, but in particular, what people are choosing to put to put on themselves. So anyway, if you guys have any predictions, I would love to hear them. Um, you know, post in our um, Fashioned by Faith Facebook group what you think might happen in the fashion realm after this quarantine because everything is going to be affected to some degree and of course being that I love fashion I'm particularly interested to know how that will be affected too <laughs> we've got a great new topic to delve in today as I said before we're going to be talking about the clothes of Christ and what they reveal to us about his humanity and his divinity. So without further ado, let's get into it. So I'm so excited to talk about this topic with you guys today. Um, it's a bit intimidating to talk about the clothes of Christ because I feel like clothes, fashion, you know, that ranks like really, really low in comparison to God Almighty, right? I mean, they're not even comparable. But this is a topic that had been on my heart for a couple months now. And I was just like, trusting that God would show me the right time uh, when and if I were to talk about it with you guys. And just all of a sudden this past week, um, just things kind of flew into my mind. Um, and so I've picked out 10 parts of Christ's fashion, as it were. It just feels funny to say that, but 10 maybe things that were on his person that I think really do give us some insight into the wonderful God that we, that we love and worship. And I want you to keep this in mind. You know, often in scripture, clothes identify attitudes or actions. And we see this in the armor of God passage in Ephesians 6. You know, we're called to put on the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the shoes of peace, the shield of faith. You might be familiar with that. And similarly, in this text, St. Paul uses the clothing analogy to describe actions and attitudes a believer must put off and put on. He says in Colossians 3:12, therefore as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Um, and that's just so beautiful. That's the that's the type of clothing that really matters. And I think as we take a look at Christ and what he chose to put on his body or what he allowed to be put on him, uh, we're going to see how he truly did clothe himself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, and even more than those virtues. So 
like I said, there's 10 uh, aspects I want to talk about with you. The first is the swaddling clothes that he wore at birth, right? That's the very first clothing that would have surrounded his body was the swaddling clothes. And there's actually a lot of significance to that, okay? And what I think it shows us about his humanity, obviously, is that he needed to be cared for, right? He was this little weak, poor baby that needed to be cared for. But the swaddling clothes also pointed toward his upcoming sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself. So when the angel Gabriel announced to the shepherds in the field, they declared Christ's birth to the shepherds and he gave them a sign. And do you know what that sign was? In Luke chapter 2, 9 to 12, it says, And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were so afraid. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Here it is, ready? Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, laying in a manger. And I didn't think about this before until recently when I was doing some research. The kind of shepherds that the angels appeared to were Levitical shepherds, okay? The kind that they'd speak about in the book of Leviticus. These shepherds, they knew that they were caring for sheep that would one day be offered as sacrifices. In fact, when these special sheep were born, they were often wrapped in swaddling clothes to keep them unblemished, you know, so that they would be an unblemished sacrifice as best they could. So these shepherds were quite familiar with how something special for God is cared for, okay? They understood the tremendous significance of the Son of God being identified by being wrapped in swaddling clothes. It foretold that he would be the ultimate and perfect sacrifice. Isn't that fascinating? So just the swaddling clothes themselves have tremendous significance and insight uh, to who our God is. And he was born in Bethlehem. Uh, Bethlehem, I don't know if you know this, means house of bread. And how appropriate because, you know, Jesus is the bread of life. Through him we find our, our physical and our spiritual sustenance. All right, and then the second thing I want to talk about is Christ's everyday adult clothes, okay? Um, and I feel like in his everyday adult clothes, it shows us his commonplace humanity and also his divine level of humility. So Christ probably would have worn rough clothes, you know, meaning fabric of a plain or, or common weave. And since Jesus did not have much in the way of money or possessions, he likely wore the least expensive fabrics. His primary garment would have probably been like a short tunic, um, which was very typical for the dress of the poor back then. Um, 
and it, it kind of goes down to about his knees. Um, wealthy people wore tunics that extended to their ankles, but the fabric of Jesus's tunic probably would have only gone down to the knees and would have been plain, um, probably not even dyed at all. Uh, Jesus's legs and ankles would have been bare, and on his feet, probably just a simple pair of sandals, uh, maybe with soles made of leather. Um, these would not have kept his feet clean, but they would have protected the soles of his feet as he walked. Um, and then Jesus probably would have also carried a shawl or a mantle. Um, and this was like a fringed woolen uh, shawl with rough edges. Um, and it was very customary for men of that period uh, to cover their head during prayer time. And that might have been dyed, um, but usually for the poor like Jesus was, it was probably undyed. And that is probably what Jesus wore on a typical basis. Other than that, you know, maybe he would have wrapped a blanket him around himself. Um, you know, if it was a particularly cold day and he was in his home, maybe he would use a blanket. But other than that, that's pretty much what you would have seen him in. So Jesus was, you know, certainly a minimalist when it came to material possessions. And we know that minimalism really helps us, you know, focus on God and his kingdom. And that's probably why we need to embrace minimalism more. Christ, you know, he did not need elaborate dress uh, to impress people um, because he impressed people by his virtue, how he behaved, how he treated others. You know, he didn't have v need for vanity. He wasn't vain. Um, and yeah, I don't know. He just, he enriched people um, he, by his example, by his life. And, and he lived as a beggar um, because he was ultimately dependent on charity for survival, which is similar to our clergy today. Okay, so that's just a reflection on his everyday clothes. And I, and I really do think that it shows, um, you know, his, his commonplace humanity and his divine level of humility. The third point I want to talk about is how a miracle came through his clothes. I love this one. And I think that this shows that even ordinary things like clothes, which are, you know, of this world, can be used for extraordinary purposes, like bringing about God's miracles. So in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, verse 25 to 34, let me just read this to you. It says, A woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him. Okay, so she's behind him. And she touched his cloak, for she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. And immediately the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in on you and you say, who touched me? In other words, I guess they were thinking, how could you even know? 
And God, he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. So I just I just love that verse because, first of all, the woman has such confidence. She knows, even though you know there's a crowd and and he's got all these people he's tending to she just knows with such strong faith that if she even just touches a teeny bit of his cloak she will be healed so she really approaches him with great love and faith and um i i really love that even though she touched his clothing and not him directly he still as god who is all powerful right and all knowing and everything he um he knew that he had healed someone And I just think that's so cool. And then he turns around and he gives her an opportunity to reveal herself to him. And I just, I just love that. And I just love that a miracle came through (laughs) something so ordinary as his clothes. All right. The fourth thing I want to talk about is the transfiguration. Remember this? This is one of the mysteries of the rosary. And I feel that it shows how God can take something again, so ordinary and suddenly reveal it to be extraordinary. So this is in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 17. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And I love this part. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters or three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. I love that his hospitality, um, Peter is immediately trying to be hospitable and like set up tents for for Moses and Elijah, probably not realizing at that moment um, that, you know, Moses and Elijah, you know, they were speaking from another world, right? They had already passed away. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down on the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Um, So that was really, really a profound thing that happened, and I just love that you know, I don't know what color Jesus's clothes were before the transfiguration, but gosh, you know, I can't imagine what it must have looked like that his clothes were so white that they became bright as light. And when you see artists depict the transfiguration, often um, you see Peter, James, and John, you know, on the ground kind of falling down covering their eyes. Jesus is so bright. Um, So there's another example of how Christ's clothes, um, you know, really took something very ordinary from his humanity and then revealed it to be so extraordinary, which is of God. All right. My fifth point I want to share is the crown of thorns. And I feel like the crown of thorns really shows us the type of God we love and serve um, because he endured mockery and suffering for love of us. So as you know, um, after Jesus's trials and subsequent flogging and before he was crucified, 
the Roman soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head and they pushed it down into his head too. And they put a staff in his right hand and they knelt in front of him and they mocked him. And I remember when I was a little girl and I would hear this reading at mass, I struggled. I didn't understand because at that time, at that age, I didn't know what mockery was. Um, So I think it can be very confusing to young children who may not understand what mockery is. Anyway, but, you know, they, they knelt in front of him and they go, you know, hail king of the Jews. And while a crown of thorns would be exceedingly painful, and it was, the crown of thorns here was more about mockery. And that might have been even more painful. And, and here the king of the Jews is being beaten and spit upon and insulted by, you know, presumably pretty low-level Roman soldiers, right? So the crown of thorns was, you know, it was a finalization kind of of their mockery. It was taking the symbol of royalty and, and majesty, you know, a crown, and really turning it into something painful and degrading. And so for us Christians, the crown of thorns is, is really a reminder of two things. First, I would say, you know, Jesus was and is indeed a king. And one day the entire universe will bow to Jesus as the king of kings and lord of lords, as it says in Revelation chapter 19. But what the Roman soldiers meant as mockery was in fact a picture of Christ's two roles, right? First of the suffering servant, like in Isaiah 53, and second of conquering Messiah, you know, the the conquering Messiah king that would be referenced in Revelation 19. And then second, uh, Jesus was willing to endure the pain, the insults, and the shame all on my and your account. And, And so the crown of thorns and the suffering that went with it, you know, I don't know, it just, it just, um, it's just a very painful thing to meditate on. And we see him who was a little while, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So, and there's further symbolism embodied in the crown of thorns. Like, I don't know if you thought about this before, but when Adam and Eve sinned, you know, bringing evil and a curse upon the world, part of the curse upon humanity was, you know, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. I don't know if you remember that. That's in Genesis chapter 3. The Roman soldiers you know, unknowingly took an object of the curse and fashioned it into a crown, right? They took those thorns and they made it into a crown for the one who would deliver us from that curse, right? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That was in Galatians chapter 3. But Christ, in his perfect atoning sacrifice, has delivered us from the curse of sin, which a thorn is a symbol of, you guys. So while it was intended to be mockery, the crown of thorns was, in fact, an excellent symbol of who Jesus is and what he came to come, what he came here to accomplish. Okay, number six, let's talk about the purple robe. Um, purple is the color of royalty. 
right? Now, in Matthew's gospel, which we read about at Mass this year, um, which I think is cycle A, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the robe they put on him during his passion is actually scarlet red. But even though purple's the color of royalty, and then, you know, they were mocking him, red is also appropriate. I'm not sure which color it was. Maybe it was, you know, sort of a mix of the true of the two, excuse me. But red is the color of the blood that he shed for our sins. So, you know, all this points again to how they mocked him. And I just want to point out, it's a very human experience to be mocked. So he really was certainly experiencing our humanity. He was sharing in that with us. But it is of supernatural grace to not fight back. And notice how he didn't. He didn't fight back. He just endured. And that gives us a tremendous example to be like that when we are persecuted. Number seven, I want to talk about Veronica's veil. I love this. Once again, I think this is going to show us how something so ordinary, like a simple act of love, using an ordinary piece of cloth (laughs) can be so extraordinary. Um, And in this case, leaving an imprint of his holy face and giving her a relic. (laughs) So Veronica, if you remember in the story of the Passion of Our Lord, she is a person that is just moved to compassion. And she takes the veil that's protecting her own head, right, from the sun's heat, and, and she passes by the guards and she reaches out to wipe the face of Jesus with it. And her fa- his face, you know, is, is sweaty and it's bloody and it's dirty because he has fallen many times, right? And, and she, just, she just wants to clean him up and, and wipe his face. And if she had not followed her own instinct, and, and maybe if she sat there and she reflected a bit more on it, about what she was going to do, she might have not found the courage to do it. You know what I mean? But she didn't, she didn't think any more than that initial thought of there he is. I want to wipe his face. I want to help him out. And she ran up and she did that. And I just, I just think that's absolutely beautiful. Veronica has always impressed me. And that particular station of the cross has always been special in my heart. Let's talk about, um, the eighth item here. Remember when he was stripped of his garments. And I, I feel that this is representative of how his dignity, uh, you know, both human and divine, is really taken away. So Jesus is stripped of his garments. And I, I referenced this before in the beginning, how clothing gives a person social position back then and even now probably, right? Uh, it gives him his place in society. It makes him someone. So our Lord's public stripping means that Jesus is no longer anything at all. He is simply an outcast, despised by all alike. And the moment of the stripping reminds us of the expulsion from paradise, right? Back with Adam and Eve. God's splendor has fallen away from man, who now stands naked and exposed, unclad and ashamed. And so Jesus once more takes on the condition of fallen man, stripped of his garments, it reminds us that we have all lost the first garment that is God's splendor, right? Which, you know, we we can retain again through the sacrament of baptism. All right, let's talk about point nine here. Remember how lots were cast for his clothes during his passion? Well, according to the gospel of John, the soldiers who crucified Jesus did not divide his tunic 
after crucifying him, but cast lots to determine who would keep it because it was woven in one piece without seam. And um, a distinction is made in the New Testament with some of the the Greek words, um, one meaning over garments, and then a separate word meaning the seamless robe or like a tunic or a coat. So the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, and he's, he's up there suffering on the cross, they then decided to take his garments and divide them into four parts, um, to every soldier a part. Um, and then the coat, this is what I'm talking about here, the coat was without seam. It was woven from a whole piece of cloth from the top down. So therefore they must have said to themselves, you know, let us not tear it, but let us cast lots for it. Um, on who, it, whose it will become. And, and this is the scripture being fulfilled um, because scripture said, as they predicted this Messiah, they divided my clothes among them and upon my vesture, they cast lots. So pretty incredible. Last point I wanna talk about is the burial clothes. So just like the swaddling clothes were the shepherd's, you know, first way of recognizing the son of God, the empty, the empty burial clothes became the first way that the first Christians knew Christ had risen. They ran into the tomb, you know, and, and they were only satisfied that he was risen when they saw his empty burial cloths. Now I know the angel also spoke to Mary, right? And we also saw the um, the big stone rolled away, right? And the guards are like like dead guys on the ground, right? So there were other, other things too. But as other Christians continued to visit, they went in and they, until they saw those um, cloths, I don't know that people fully believed. Sometimes, you know, I don't know, maybe we were all being like Satan Thomas, right? The doubting Thomas. Um, but anyway, and, and this is something really interesting. I don't know if you ever noticed this in the scripture, but when they found those burial clothes, they were neatly rolled. And so I think we can conclude, number one, that Jesus was a neat person, and number two, that he rolled his towels instead of folding them, <laughs> which is funny because that's what I do. I roll our, um, our bathroom towels instead of folding them. I just think they look prettier. But anyway, okay, side note. Uh, so the Gospel of John in chapter 20, verse 7, tells us that the cloth which was placed over the face of Jesus was not just like thrown aside. Um, it was placed very neatly. In fact, the Bible takes an entire verse to tell us that the cloth was neatly rolled up and was placed in a separate location. It was very thoughtfully placed. Um, and I just think that's really neat that God took the time uh, to do something so small. Um, anyway, I need to remember that when I'm like, you know, doing laundry and tidying things up, making my bed, whatever. Even though Christ was probably so excited to get out there and show everyone that he had rose from the dead. Uh, he still took the time to neatly place <laughs> the burial cloths uh, in a, in a good spot. So anyway, um, I don't know if you've heard of the Shroud of Turin, but this is the name uh, for this relic, um, which is the, the burial clothes of Jesus. And I encourage you to Google it and study it online. You know, there is some controversy surrounding it, but for the most part, it gives us an incredible insight into his death. Um, you know, scientists have studied 
the Shroud of Turin and we can see where the nails were placed, um, how they were placed in his wrists and not his hands, um, where the nails were placed in his feet. And scientists have been able to surmise that our Lord would have had to straighten his legs in order to take a deep breath and fill his lungs with oxygen. So unfortunately, breathing was very laborsome while he hung on the cross, um, you know, but he did all of this for, for you and for me. So just, just a profound thing to reflect on tonight. I hope this was beneficial to you. And if there are any other aspects of Christ's clothes that are worth mentioning that I did not think of, please, please definitely post and share in our Facebook group. Um, because I would love to learn more about this topic. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. It is time for our holy homework. Okay, listeners, our challenge for ourselves and for you this week um, is to share in our Fashioned by Faith Facebook group your favorite image of what you think Christ looked like. I would just love to know what image of him most resonates with you. And in particular, I'm going to be looking at the clothing, right, of whatever image you share, um, because that might give us some insight into what draws you to certain images of Christ. So I would just love it if you would please share your favorite image of what you think Christ looked like. Maybe it's um, a clip from a movie, or maybe it's a painting or an icon, whatever, whatever resonates with you most that's what I really want to see this week, okay? <laughs> this was fun, guys. Thanks for listening to the Fashioned by Faith podcast. And please spread the word. Tell your friends about us. Visit fashionedbyfaith.com to learn more.